0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and
1: more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with physicist Brian Green. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast.
0: Um, It's funny really sensitive. Hi, Brian.
1: It. It's Krista Tippett.
0: Hi, Hi, Krista. How are you? I
1: can see that you have become a production engineer in lockdown.
0: <laughs> a, a failure at one.
1: <laughs> You've expanded <laughs> your repertoire.
0: I can't I can't get this little knob to do what it's supposed to do. You,
1: do you have all this um, equipment at home?
0: Um, well, our, our sort of temporary home used to be our, our country home, but it turned into our full-time home for the yeah. last, you know, 16 yes. months. So we... Uh, we outfitted it with a few things. Um yeah. Yeah, for that purpose.
1: Have you have you also done you've done video, right? You've done well, yeah, Science we've Festival actually, video. I see. We
0: have. We've actually produced, you know, full, you know, hour long programs in like a little tiny space with a green screen and yeah. you know, you can make <laughs> things look reasonably good because yeah. of that, you know. Oh.
1: Well, I'm uh your new book is fantastic and I'm I'm glad we get another chance to to speak. So thank
0: you. Much appreciated.
1: Yeah. Um so you know, I'm always I'm always interested in kind of the origins of the passions and questions of a person's life, spiritual and otherwise, in the background of of childhood. I think we see so much taking root there. And it seems to me um that really from 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 an early time, you're in your fascination with mathematics and science. You also sensed that that this was your way of getting at deep mysteries of the universe. And and I don't know that your question though is not why am I here, but how am I here? That's how you said it somewhere. Sure. Um, is that and and but it, and also that that in your career, in addition to your work as a scientist, you've become this translator and storyteller, um, you know, kind of sharing and explaining this story of science across time and in our time. And I guess what I was curious about is where do you see the roots of that? Do you trace that back to some impulse of your earliest life? I, I think so.
0: You know, my dad, I guess with many people, it was my parents, but my dad in particular, he was a composer and a singer. But music for him was not just a means of entertainment or a means of self-expression. It was really a journey mm. toward a certain kind of truth. And I could feel him searching for that truth. And it wasn't always a happy experience. You know, mm. it was a tough life for my dad being... A composer in a world that it's hard to have your music played out there in the world. And that was part of the truth that he was seeking. And I think when my interest turned more towards science, he was an enthusiastic promoter of that interest because it resonated with his own desire to understand life and reality more fully, but it was a different trajectory, a different pathway. Hmm. And so I think that's kind of where it began. And then my dad being a kind of showman in a way, you know, being out there as a senior comedian in an earlier age, I think I absorbed a little bit of that. And, you know, when I had the opportunity to be on the stage in a different way, talking about the ideas of science, the first time I did that was at the Aspen Institute for Physics, I think it was back in Mm. the 1990s. And, And kind of having an audience that was so excited to hear about the ideas and so excited to understand things like string theory and extra dimensions. It really kind of captivated me as a means of connecting with the wider world, which often you don't do as a physicist. You connect with your colleagues, yeah. but they're very small in number. And I think that's part of where it came from.
1: Yeah, that makes sense because you are kind of a natural on that stage. And I would say you've also, yeah, you've, I mean, it's, it's there is a, there is a a larger world of science journalism and of bringing bringing scientific discovery and thinking to modern people but i feel like you have really been one of the important people in that and the world science festival is such a such a fantastic and and uh, you know you have such a, 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 a an enthusiastic following so you were you were doing something that that the world was ready for
0: yeah, I think it is a question also of timing and where the mm-hmm. world is. And I think we've come to a place, thankfully, where, you know, not everybody, but there is a large segment of the public that is excited to know about how the world works yeah. and is excited to know about the true qualities of reality that we've been able to access through these Baroque methods, you know, of mathematics and observation yeah. and experiment. And I think many people find that the world opens up when they know about quantum mechanics or relativity in a way that it's hard to open up in any other way?
1: You know, I also sometimes think that if we didn't have so many great, if we didn't have such tumult and so many great kind of civilizational and... And um, planetary challenges, you know, some of the things we might be standing in awe of are, you know, that we are the generation of our species that has mapped the genome that has heard gravitational waves that has detected black holes colliding, right? I mean, it has also been an extraordinary window, time for science, as you would say, this less than a blink in the cosmic eye, but this time that you've been doing science that we're alive
0: you no, know, it's, it's an amazing thing to be part of this generation. And you're right, I think it is partly overshadowed by, you know, important problems, tragic problems, yeah. you know, difficult problems that we're all facing. But at the same time, to recognize that we human beings who emerged through the very same processes that gave rise to everything else on the planet can somehow see further and yeah. like you say we can look almost to the farthest reaches of the cosmos we can listen to these gravitational waves that have been traveling for billions of years through the cosmos and finally they wash across the shores of our planet and we've built detectors to listen in on that particular disturbance to the cosmos yeah. it's just it's just thrilling yeah just astounding
1: yeah um. So I'm fascinated by um this evolution of your work and it's it's fun to interview you a few years after we had a first conversation you know from the I say I say the elegant universe is when you came to be, started to become a teacher to many um and um there is this arc this narrative arc from um well as you talk about you know you we I the the collective we I, our generation time has moved from the and physics has moved from the Newtonian physics of what we could see to the physics of what we can't see and you have been kind of bringing people non-scientists along how our five senses don't equip us to perceive that illuminating these things like string theory and the multiverse these these ideas and and um intimations that are emerging and then this book that you published in the eventful year of 2021, um, Until the End of Time, also kind of moves beyond that into a different territory. I mean, how, how would you describe that shift? Um, well,
0: it's a shift that, for me, has been very much in the making for, for decades, really. You know, going back to the question you asked at the outset you know where do these interests and motivations and inspirations come from i think throughout my entire scientific career yes i've been deeply interested in the science itself it's mind-blowing relativity quantum mechanics and so forth but for me the ways in which those ideas illuminates who we are mm. as living beings as conscious self-reflective beings walking around on this nondescript planet in the outskirts of an ordinary galaxy, what those ideas can tell us about our place in the cosmic order, that's what's really excited me. And so this book really is an outgrowth of trying to understand how we humans fit in the grandest possible landscape, the story from the beginning of time, to the closest that science can take us to the end of time. And what we human beings do when there's a moment when we rise up, we can look around and try to figure out how we got here, what purpose we might have in being here, and what the future of this reality that we're part of holds as we pivot our focus from the past and look to the very far future. And that's really what the book is about. It's telling that cosmological story with a with a focus on the human quest to understand who we are.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the human enterprise in that context of the cosmological story. Um, you you make a lot of moves. You you, you make a lot of moves, um, but you begin with um some organizing principles from from physics, from science. Um I wanted so you actually you have early in the book you have um, you recount or remind us of this famous nineteen forty eight debate on the existence of God between Bertrand Russell and a Jesuit priest. And Bertrand Russell's who who was an atheist in a time when that was a very radical thing to be, right, in Western civilization. Um you know a large part of his of his argument was about the gradual decline into disorder that is in the law of nature and in and and you pick up that that um concept of entropy of gradual decline the second law of thermo, thermodynamics the the shorthand is things fall apart right and sure. you also don't believe in a divine a hand behind all of this but you do say and I think I actually feel like you celebrate. You say a more precise understanding of the science reveals that this this obscures a rich and nuanced progression, one that has yeah. been underway since the Big Bang, and will carry onward into the future. So yeah, just say say a little bit about that. What you see of that nuanced sure. progression?
0: Well, well, I suspect that Bertrand Russell would be on the same same page. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, sometimes in a debate. And he was debating, you know, the existence of God. You tend to go to a polarized perspective to try to make your argument as forcefully as you possibly can. And he was making the case that when you look at this law that you mentioned, the second law of thermodynamics, it does tell us that ultimately things do fall apart, as you say. Ultimately, there's disintegration, dissolution, decay, a withering away of all structure in the universe. And that certainly can taint your picture of what's it all about, what's it all for, if it all ultimately goes away. And his point was, if that's how it's going to be, I don't see any reason for believing in a god that would create a universe of that particular sort. But when you look at the science more closely, you realize that that summary is a little quick, Mm. because the science itself makes clear that there can be these intermediate windows of time. In fact, we're living in that window right now when the universe can enjoy order. It can enjoy structure. It can be the home of beauty. It doesn't last long on cosmological scales, but here we are. Hmm. We are these living beings whose bodies are so exquisitely ordered that we can have conscious experience, we can think and feel and we can look out into the world and we can figure things out and we can puzzle about things and we can we can have grief and joy and elation and pain and all of that collectively is an enormous feat for a mere collection of particles governed by physical law, which is all that we are. And so to my mind, yes, ultimately it all does fall apart. But look how spectacular it is that we're here Hmm. in this window at this moment that the universe supports the kinds of structures, stars and planets, and at least on one such planet, living systems such as ourselves, who can have these transcendent experiences.
1: And and, I mean, obviously these are you know entropy is a very complex concept right and so this is a simplification and and what i'm going to i want you know make sure i want you to so this is all simplified but but the way you explain it also so evolution is 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 a counterpart to entropy so i mean what you describe really in the nature of the cosmos of things writ large is this constant um dance this tension um, that actually is very creative at times between order and disorder. Is that is that too simplistic? Yeah.
0: No, no, it's not too simplistic at all. Mm-hmm. It's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So the counterpart to this second law of thermodynamics, which in the language of science is this increase of disorder or increase of entropy, as we call it. The counterpart to that is evolution. Evolution is is a process whereby structures can naturally form out of an otherwise chaotic environment. I mean, most of us learned about evolution in our biology classes, certainly that's where I learned about it. And in that context, which is the context in which Darwin first introduced it, it starts already with living systems and then evolution is the process by which those living systems can change giving rise to the rich spectrum of species that populate planet Earth. But actually, evolution begins long before there's any living systems. All you need are particles out there floating around that have learned the trick of replication, kind of reproduction at the level of particles. Any molecule that has the capacity to be a template to build a copy of itself sets up the situation where evolution can cause the descendants of that molecule to be ever better adapted to the environment in the sense that they can make ever greater numbers of copies of themselves. Mm. And so here you've got a process where molecules can build molecules, and those molecules can get even better at being architects of new molecules. And so you see a refinement of structure happening through Evolution by natural selection at the level of molecules, so that process builds up structure, whereas entropy and the second law of thermodynamics tends to break it all down. And so there are these two principles that kind of dance around each other from the beginning of time, really to the very end.
1: It's interesting. Um, you, 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 you also, and I don't, I, I don't know if this is new in you, but I, I see you kind of understanding or nodding kind of um to the fact that that religion and theology is a place where these you know not not in the cosmological perspective that you have but that that this tension between order and disorder has actually been perceived and analyzed and pondered right so so i keep thinking of um You know, Augustine or Reinhold Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr, who's the first line of his book, um, The Nature and Destiny of Man, was man is always his own most vexing problem. And basically this analysis, this sophisticated analysis of the human condition that, you know, our political analysis could be more sophisticated, um, that, you know, that we are torn between the fact of our finitude and mortality and these intimations we have almost at a physical level, right, in our bones and our bodies of eternity, or infinity um you you know a thinker named Ernest Becker who I'm not aware of who's I think uh, uh, what what was his field not a theologian but
0: An- anthropology, anthropologist anthropologist yeah,
1: yeah observing the same kind of thing so so you are getting at really as you point at this uh, something that that is has been part of existential pondering for hu- human beings even as we have not had this base of knowledge
0: yeah. For sure. Uh, and, and Ernest Becker is, for me, one of the great influences in my way of thinking about the world. He wrote a book that isn't well known anymore. It won the Pulitzer Prize back in the 70s, but I don't really hear many people speak about it any longer called The Denial of Death. And he was developing ideas that go back to Otto Ronck and early Freudian. And the basic tenet of the thinking is that we, are the singular species on the planet that really knows about our own mortality and that awareness of the finite nature of our lives has a profound impact on how we live yeah. our lives and yeah. that the idea being that we do all that we can to try to deny this fact of finiteness and so we are driven to think about things and to extol and to revere things that have a permanence to them And, of course, the kinds of things that we begin to develop are ideas that I believe come from our own imagination, but I don't consider that to diminish them. I think that aggrandizes them. We imagine qualities of the world that transcend the physical laws. We imagine deities and gods and other possibilities which will not be subject to this mortal nature, and we invest ourselves in those qualities in order to try to imagine that we, too, might be able to touch the eternal.
1: And you also, in your more recent writing, are you're appreciative, I would say, of the many kinds of stories that we have to tell about reality um, that add up to our understanding. And, and, and that the inner world, the interior world, it, it feels to me like that has become more vital to you um, more interesting, maybe even.
0: Yeah, I think you. I think that's a absolutely correct summary. You know, when you're when you're young and starting out, especially in a field like physics, at least for me, I was just totally captivated by doing the calculations and trying to push the boundary of, say, string theory, and trying to make some headway toward Einstein's dream of a unified theory. Is all really about the science, but on a, on a mental back burner, I knew at some point that I would need to return more fully to the thing that drove me to be a scientist in the first place, which, as we were saying before, is really, how can it illuminate hmm. us? How can it illuminate our place in the cosmos? And over the years, I have come to a firm sensibility that the only way to do that is not to focus on one subject or another, but rather to recognize that reality can be understood most fully only by putting together all of the stories that give insight into different levels of reality. So physics is really good at giving insight into what stuff is made of and the fundamental laws, the particles and the equations. That's only one story though. So then the chemist comes along and builds from that, the story of how those particles come together into, into molecular systems. The biologist comes along and tells another story, which is how those complex chemicals can come together into cells and living systems. But then you really need to keep on going. You need the story that comes from the neuroscientist or the psychologist that allows us to understand how our brains allow us to engage with the world and to feel and think and understand the world. You need the story that comes from philosophy that begins to address the big questions that a brain like ours is able to start to think about personal identity and free will and the things that really matter to us. And you do need the theological story as well. The kinds of stories that we humans have been telling ourselves over the course of thousands of years that helps illuminate for many people why we're here and what might be some ultimate meaning or purpose to our existence. And it's only through the amalgam of all these nested stories That you get the fullest picture of reality.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I kept thinking when I was when I was just as I was reading you about this. um, You have this. You have this. appreciation for, you know, what ancient story you know, I think, which almost from a scientific perspective, these myths and ancient stories that hold for thousands of years. I think you dwell into Gilgamesh, right? What is being yeah. tapped into? And I, I was thinking of um, this, my favorite definition of myth by the Roman historian Solon, who said Um, That a myth is not something that never happened, but something that happens over and over and over again. Or from the ancient rabbis, that what happens once upon a time happens all the time. Um, Just how fascinating that is. And in our time, you know, there are ways in which science catches up with some of these things that have been passed down in human culture, but not understood scientifically.
0: Yeah, I mean, there can be a a flat-footed approach from science that looks out at the world and says that anything that we say or do that isn't true in the sense of literally aligning with our understanding of the physical world that comes from the equations of maxwell or einstein or schrodinger that somehow that is not valuable or important to our understanding of the world and my view is nothing could be further from the truth because much as you're saying The stories that we have been telling ourselves and the myths that have emerged from that storytelling instinct, which goes back to the earliest moments of our species, those stories are capturing the truth of us as human beings. So no one's going to, of course, take the position that any kind of wild monster, any kind of feat that transcends physical possibility is true literally, but it speaks to our urges, our desires, our wishes, our wants, the things that matter to us. And those truths are as important as a truth that speaks to the magnetic moment of the electron, Mm -hmm. right? What the physicists are able to write down and calculate. And those inner truths are absolutely vital to understand the true nature of the world you know william james expressed this in a way that i think is just utterly spectacular in the uh, in the varieties of religious experience these lectures that he gave back in like 1902 i yeah. think in scotland and and in in that book you know he explores the many ways that human beings practice a kind of religious, a religious undertaking and and the various ways that those activities are undertaken and the roles that they play in people's lives. But his main point, which he emphasizes toward the end is science is really good at giving us a picture of the objective outer world, but that's only half of the story. The other part of the story is the inner exploration of who we are. And those journeys can, for many people, be best accomplished through story, through myth, through religion, because those kinds of journeys can guide us to places that science can never take us. So it's not that those ideas are somehow in tension or in conflict with science. That's such a simplistic way of looking at the world. They are illuminating qualities of existence that are complementary and distinct and collectively need to be put together so that we really understand who we are.
1: And at the same time, you you do hold um, of a very clear sense um, as a physicist and as a human being that 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 a human life is a manifestation of physics. Um, mm-hmm. I think you have you know here's some ways I've heard you say this in an ex, you know exquisitely coordinated matter um, that we are products of purposeless. Mindless physics, and I've heard people push you on this, and want you. You know, the question is, how can you then possibly speak about a search for meaning and purpose if you see us that way?
0: Yeah are you Are you going to push me on it too? I want to (laughs) know. I want to. I
1: no. I yeah. Yeah. How so? That's good. You do absolutely go there. So so talk about that. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah.
0: So 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 you're absolutely right. My view from the perspective of what we are as physical beings is we are nothing but collections of particles that are fully governed by the laws of physics. You know, colloquially, where we are bags of particles that have a particular organization that allows for certain biological functions to take place, and that's all that we are. Now, some would say, as you're recounting, well, if that's your view of who we are, then you've already eliminated any possibility for for meaning or value and purpose. You've denigrated. The very nature of what it means to be human, in my view, is exactly the opposite. My view is the very fact that collections of particles can do the kinds of things that we can do. The fact that you and I can have this conversation, the fact that an Einstein can work out the laws of general relativity, the fact that a Shakespeare can write King Lear, the fact that a Beethoven can compose the Ode to Joy finale to the Ninth Symphony, the fact that particles governed by physical law can do all that, that to me is the wonder of it all. That to me is where it's thrilling. And it takes me back to the perspective that those who look for value and meaning and purpose by focusing their attention on the outer world and hoping against hope that the universe will provide an answer to the question of what's it for, what's it about, what's the meaning of it all, are looking in the wrong direction. The place to find value and meaning and purpose is to look inward. It's a completely personal, highly subjective exploration because those concepts are concepts of human origin. The concept of purpose doesn't come from the universe. It comes from us human beings. The concept of value, it's invented by us human beings. Again, that doesn't denigrate it. That doesn't undercut it. To me, it's far more noble that we, as these collections of particles, come up with an idea of purpose, an idea of value, an idea of meaning. And then we try to find qualities of existence that fit those concepts that give us a sense of gratification and a sense of meaning. And so the fact that we're bags of particles only accentuates how spectacular it is that we can have even this conversation about value and meaning. And it focuses our attention, in my view, in the right direction, which is inward as opposed to outward.
1: Somewhere you said, um, you're speaking about entropy, right? The the fact that there degrades makes you... Gives you an even more passionate focus on the here. Right? Yeah. On the here. Um, yeah, go on.
0: Yeah, no, you're, absolutely. You know, when, when you recognize that if you look to the far future, it all goes away, that recognition focuses your attention in a spectacularly powerful way on the here and the now. And by that, I don't mean this very moment. I mean the window in the cosmological unfolding in which it's possible for stars and planets and living systems and consciousness to exist. So that window on human scales is not tiny. You can do calculations. These were spearheaded by the great physicist Freeman Dyson, but you can do calculations which show that in roughly 10 to the 50 years from now. It's a long time, right? Mm. 10 to the 50 years from now. We're only now 10 to the 10 years from the Big Bang. But in roughly 10 to the 50 years from now, consciousness will not be possible in our universe. The physical laws almost certainly are such that consciousness itself will be one of the things that by that point will have withered away. Now on cosmological scales, that window is still tiny. So in this little tiny slice of eternity... The universe is able to support life and consciousness. And yes, it then focuses your attention on that window with a, a degree of energy that I think would be hard to attain without the recognition of it all going away.
1: Yeah, and as you've pointed out, and I've actually thought about this a lot, you know, in these very tumultuous, strange um you know, eventful, to put it mildly, years um, of this early century, um, there's a way in which just pulling the lens back to a longer sense of time, um, you know, not even a cosmological sense of time, but if you make it a cosmological sense of time, there's a there's a certain solace in that every once in a while to be able to create perspective that is deeply reality-based um, around what feels uh you know so so immediate and hard to see beyond yeah
0: yeah you know and there's a real concrete way in which i mean i i think like many people was raised in an environment that placed emphasis on doing something that would last you know yeah. my dad wanted yes. to write music right. that would last <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and and i wanted to you know come up with ideas of physics that would last. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that is a powerful motivator. But when you then realize that, well, nothing really lasts, right? It lasts for some period of time in the cosmological timeline, but then it all goes away. It has the impact of taking you to ideas that are incredibly familiar to anybody that meditates or yeah. has sessions with mindfulness teachers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, it's something yeah. that the sages and philosophers have been saying forever, which is what really matters is what's, what's here. And that, you know, always looking to the future is somehow missing the point. Well, that lesson, which many of the great thinkers of the past, they realized through different considerations, my view is, you can get to that very same lesson in a kind of profoundly different way that I think gives you a different perspective on it, which is the one that we're discussing. When you realize that everything dissolves in the sufficiently far future, that immediately has, at least on me personally, had a profound impact of shifting perspective in a manner that focuses on the things that are here and now, not worrying about what they will be in the there and then.
1: Yeah. I just had a conversation coming in here with a colleague of mine who was telling – she was telling me about this really important deadline we have, something we're supposed to submit tomorrow, Friday. And uh, we may have to push it to Monday. And I said, well, I'm getting ready to have a conversation about the next few billion years. So, <laughs> yeah. like, that really gives perspective. But but at the same time, I'm, what I'm really curious so – People always want to ask you about free will, and I think I asked you about free will. We spoke a few years ago, and I don't really want to go into that. I mean, you you say we you say we, at a human level we do make choices and decisions, but our capacity to do so is not beyond the reach of physical law. Um, but
0: I'm I'm happy to go there if well, you want to.
1: Well, what I really here's what I'd like to get into is these these observations about us as human beings and this window of time and how extraordinary we are, in fact, um, and how extraordinary it is to be alive now. And, and yet you know, I'm curious about how you think about the social, um, the civilizational uh, implications of this thinking because, I mean, I hear you talking about things. You'll just throw into a conversation, you know, we're we've come here by we have a hundred thousand generations right again, but but we are in a time this matter I think this matter of time and generations as they are civilizationally manifest. Um, the example people, people often people and 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 the and the moral right what what kinds of moral. Mm-hmm. Um, callings uh, or responsibilities might we have um or how would you think about moral responsibility with this view of us and the cosmos the way i hear people draw you out on this often is about punishment like what's the point of punishing if 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 at some deep complex level um we're not we don't have the kind of will that we perceive ourselves to have. But but I, I'm curious about something like, let's say, the climate crisis, right, which in some ways is being deepened and compounded by our very inability to think and act within a longer timeline to see ourselves in that way. Yeah, Um. So how, how do you think about, I mean, don't, do, you have, do you have teenagers or young adults?
0: I do. Yeah. I have a 16-year-old son and just about 14-year-old daughter. Yeah. So,
1: you know, so, right you know, you know I think this this new generation of our species um, is feeling a lot of things in their bodies um, that didn't feel as urgent to um, to previous generations. So, how do you think through something like that and the matter of moral imperative or moral responsibility or or whatever language you would use.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I do use that, that language and sometimes people are surprised that I use the language of morality in the face of, as you say, my view, which I won't go into great depth on, but I don't think that we have freedom of will in the traditional sense. I don't think that we are the ultimate authors of our actions. I do fully believe that Our actions come from the motion of our constituent particles that are fully governed by physical law. So I think our brains are really good at concocting a narrative whereby our actions fit into a coherent story, but that story itself suggests that we are the author of that story when it's actually the laws of physics, if you will, that's the ghostwriter behind the scenes. And so where does morality fit? into a picture where you are not charged with making the decision of whether to act one way or another and where does punishment come into it and how do we use these notions to effectuate action on things that matter like climate change and my answer to that is a very pragmatic one our use of punishment should solely be in the service of shaping future behaviors even things that don't have free will can change their behaviors, or their behaviors more precisely can be impacted by events that they encounter. I mean, the example that I love to use for this perhaps not even the best one, but anyone that has a Roomba going around and cleaning their floors, the Roomba <laughs> learns. It doesn't have free will, but okay. you know it bangs into a couch or it sees a flight of stairs with its sensor and next go around, if it's a high-end version, it doesn't bump into the leg any longer because of that past experience. So you don't need free will to learn. So punishment should be doled out when it's clear that the act of punishment will shape the future behavior of either the individual receiving the punishment or those who are witnessing the punishment. And morality then, where does that fit into the story? Well, we have learned that as a deeply social species that comes together in groups, there are certain kinds of behaviors that facilitate the group and certain kinds of behaviors which diminish the capacity of the group to function in an effective and efficient way. And so our behavioral choices, the moral way to behave is one in which we are doing those things that promote the capacity of the social environment that allows us to be more fruitful human beings within a group setting. And something like climate change, yes, it's a somewhat longer timescale issue than that of the individual, but I strongly feel that if we as educators can instill into our students the capacity to tell various stories of the world, one, of course, is the story of the literal right here and now, and other stories look at reality on different timescales. Mm-hmm. You don't have to look only at the cosmological one that I like to promote. All of the timescales matter. If we can inculcate a sensibility where people are Constantly looking at the world through a variety of lenses, each of which is bringing into focus a different period of time. I think that if we could get people to that place, it would be much more natural and much more second nature for people to care about hmm. issues that may not affect us right now, but will affect the future health of the earth and the species. So I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, by any that's means. really interesting. But mm-hmm. that's the approach that I take.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by all the ways, all the different, you know, geologic time, deep time, but also, also, um, you know, the the course, the kind of biblical time, which in some ways is more like like cosmic time than than Newtonian time, right? This way we've we've restricted and compartmentalized and made made a bully of time in the way we structure our society. But there's also consonant with that this kind of you know this notion of the long arc of the moral universe, like in my world, I'm known for bringing in a, 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 you know for 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 asking people to think about time skills not not these billions of years, not this these cosmological time skills, but this this kind of imagination of the lo- you know the long arc of the moral universe, martin luther King jr um bends towards justice. But the idea idea there is that we human beings alive must do that bending, right? We must throw our lives at that bending towards justice. So I'm just curious, like, how does that kind of language, that image land with you?
0: Well, I think it lands squarely in, in the heart of this way of looking at the world. The vital thing is for each individual to be able to break free from the very limited conception of an individual universe, an individual moment in time, and crack that rubric and be able to recognize that the world is much bigger. The reality that they're part of is much bigger than that. Now, I like to break it wide open So that people are thinking about time from, say, the Big Bang through the emergence of stars and galaxies and on to the dissolution of everything. But part of the point of that breaking free is that all the other temporal durations that perhaps are closer to human experience, they matter to the individual. The individual is willing to see beyond the limited conception of what's happening literally right now and think about how things will be tomorrow, or 100 years, or 500 years, or 1,000 years into the future. And so when you can see the world in that way, it can matter to you how we are progressing as a species from being one way in the world that would not be characterized well on the scales of, of morality and justice and working as a collective so that we can bend, as you say, that moral arc to a place which ultimately would be a way of being in the world that would be more fruitful for everybody, mm-hmm. more beneficial for everybody. And so to me, it's all about breaking free from a very limited conception of what the world is.
1: hmm Somewhere you said, you know, that the deep impulse behind the religious notion that we are all God's children is not contradicted by science, that, that big, big perspective of our belonging to one another.
0: Yeah, I would say it even, you know, perhaps we use different language, yeah. but I would say that the, the moral lesson and the physics lesson, they're really all the same. I mean, when you recognize that we emerged from particles— that were part of reality from just after the Big Bang and those particles through the force of gravity clustered together into certain pockets of order called stars and certain other pockets of order called planets. And on some of those planets, those particles engage as we were describing before in a kind of molecular combat that yielded ever more refined particles. And some collections of those particles began to think and breathe and live and wonder about reality, you recognize that we all came from the same place. We're literally all the same. The biological processes inside of our bodies, the energy extraction mechanisms and the entropy expulsion mechanisms are the same throughout life on planet earth in a very deep sense. You recognize that the adage that we are all together It's not just a hallmark card. We are literally all part of the very same physical process building (laughs) the very same kind of biological structures. Yeah. So if you wanna call that we're all God's children, I'm fine with that. My way of interpreting that would be is we are all children of the fundamental laws and forces that guided the universe from just after the Big Bang through today and will continue to guide how reality unfolds into the ever more distant future. But it's the same basic idea.
1: Yeah, I I think it's you know again just in the category of these things we hard that we sh- we should just kind of stop in our tracks and shake our heads in amazement, right? That we're the generation of respect that forever human beings have looked at the sky and looked at the stars and wondered where we came from, and that we we now definitively know factually that we are all stardust. They were that we contain stardust, are made of stardust.
0: Yeah, in a very deep sense. Yeah. but I also allow for the very real possibility that five generations, a hundred generations from now, I don't know, they may look back on our era and smile at how quaint our perspective of the world is. And the deeper insights that may one day emerge may suggest an even more profound connection between us, a more deep relationship between all structure in the world and that is the nature of the scientific enterprise and it's the nature of human curiosity that we continue to push the boundaries and as we push ever further we typically find astounding surprises and what these surprises of the next generations will be we can only guess
1: yeah it, it, just another thing before before we kind of move completely on from this um uh you know, one of the things. So we talked about this this tension, this creative tension between order and disorder. And you said you've talked about how um, even within entropy, even within the decay, the 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 de- de- degrading that you can see from from the billions of years perspective, that that pockets of order emerge even within great disarray. And that was also interesting to me. And this may be doing something that. This may be kind of taking a scientific truth and making a false analogy. But it it felt interesting to think about that in terms of this again this moment socially civilizationally this century um where there is this over overwhelming narrative of disarray um and yet uh I I'm pretty I'm really fascinated in general about how social chain, generative social change happens across history and 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 this idea of you can have this general disorder and that pockets of order emerge. I mean, that, that's the only way that um, really forward advance is coming, I think, right now, socially. Um, that's, that's obviously a huge, a huge thing to say. But I don't know. Does that strike anything in you?
0: It does. I mean, I, I love resonances between mm. the different stories that we were mentioning before and metaphorically. I think it's a wonderful recognition that the very same kind of process that allows for the stars and planets to form is the same kind of process, again, poetically, metaphorically, that can allow for the kind of social change and social progress that you're mentioning. I mean, from the scientific perspective, we understand it well because the system is so simple compared to human beings. We know that if you have a lot of particles, then they're going to pull on each other gravitationally. And when particles pull on each other gravitationally, the particles get closer and closer together. They kind of fall in on themselves. And so a disordered array of particles floating in space through gravity can come together into an ordered ball that ultimately, if it's heavy enough and big enough, can light up with nuclear processes and a star is born. If it's not heavy enough, a Mm. planet is Mm. born. And so we know well this process by which a collection of particles that seem not to have any inherent order can nevertheless yield an ordered structure. And sure, I mean, poetically, it's the same kind of thing in in human species, human civilization. You need to have pockets of new idea, pockets of organization. You need to have pockets of human focus intentions that can allow for a kind of growth of change to take over a civilization. And it's the same kind of idea of going from what seemingly is disordered to something which all of a sudden can give rise to the kinds of orderly changes that can change how we live.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. Um, that's where I, f- I find this so, you know, it's so, um, it's cosmic, right? And yet it's so, there's, there is a practical, pragmatic angle to, to this perspective you bring um, that is helpful, right? That is helpful at a really everyday level, I think. It can be.
0: I think so. Mm -hmm. You know, I certainly find that in my own life, thinking about the world in terms of its different levels of order, different levels of organization, helps me cope with the kinds of things that we all deal with, you know, from the everyday frustrations and the everyday tragedies that we have all been going through, to be able to take a big step back and see those in context, to recognize, for instance, that the very same process that allowed us to emerge, this evolution by natural selection, that's a battle. It's a battle of collections of particles for dominance. And that very same battle is what, has ravaged the world over mm, the last yeah. 18 months. It's a battle of a different kind of bag of particles called a virus. Right. And so so the very process that can be so destructive and so tragic when set loose on the species is recapitulating a process which across billions of years has allowed us to emerge and be who we are. And I think you find that a lot when you... When you look at the universe in terms of these nested collections of explanations, these nested stories, there are ideas that recapitulate at one level or another. You can see the same kind of process at work in a distinct manner at different levels of explanation.
1: Yeah, draw that out a little bit more. So give me some examples.
0: Well, when we try to make sense of the emergence of order in the universe. Mm. So we have this process that I like to call the entropic two-step, whereby you can have orderly pockets form, but only if they emit enough disorder so that the balance sheet is such that disorder on aggregate goes up in the world. Mm. And I think we see that same kind of process at work in our everyday lives, In yeah. you know, we're trying in to our social
1: life, our in our social life. lives, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so
0: there's a kind of there's a kind of give and take mm-hmm. that has to be negotiated in our lives in order that we're able to progress in one way and develop in one way. But it's always at some level at the expense of not doing something else, or not pursuing something else, or not thinking about something else. So, there's always a deep and profound give and take that we see at work in the formation of stars and galaxies and planets, and we see it at work in the deeply social environment that we are all enmeshed within. So I find that these resonances, you can't take them at a literal level, because then you wind up twisting the science in a way that is no longer accurate, but seeing a poetic resonance between these ideas is something that I find deeply gratifying
1: and you use the you use the word poetic there and um, and I don't know maybe maybe the the question of consciousness which is just i i think but correct me if this is wrong more present as a scientific frontier than it was maybe at the, let's say at the beginning of your career and the question of also imagination as a force in human life, innovation, discovery of many kinds, also artistic. Um, Do those those things come together for you in your imagination?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there certainly was a time not that long ago where if you spoke about consciousness in the vast majority of scientific circles, people would kind of turn their back and look away. It wasn't a respectable subject for the philosophers to be about. or the
1: religious, right? Yeah, yeah, right.
0: And 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 what's changed is scientists have finally come to a place of recognition that with all the progress in neuroscience and all the progress made in understanding the biological makeup of living systems that the time is right to really start to think about how it can be. That mindless particles can come together and yield an inner world of emotion and sensibility, and and a and a world of thought and and exploration that happens within your head, as opposed to out there in the external world. So, people are now much more open in scientific circles to talking about consciousness. And to me personally, a- absolutely, you know, my personal journey began as one that was deeply trying to illuminate things that we don't see, electrons and quarks and the fundamental laws that govern them and how they can come together into molecular objects that give rise to the richness of the world around us. What are the fundamental laws and processes and so forth? And, And in parallel with that, I always had a deep love of and a deep interest in and a deep reverence for creativity more broadly defined again probably having come from a home in which my You're dad back was a at composer, your composer yeah. father yeah. yeah yeah you know so it was all it was all there mm-hmm. and 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 so to now recognize that science can illuminate human behavior and science can illuminate the kinds of distinguishing features that define us as human beings i mean i strongly feel that the reason we prevailed is that we have this amazing capacity to be irrational. Mm-hmm. We have this amazing mm-hmm. capacity to do things that don't make any sense, and those activities at times reveal solutions to deep and important problems that allow us to progress as a species. You know, I feel that if we were a Spock-like species, yeah, and you know, if we came from the planet Vulcan, I'm a big and- Star
1: Trek person too. Good, I like good. all so you- your stars although. Next generation was much better. But, okay, Spock was amazing.
0: So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly stuck on the early ones. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if, if we were like that and we only did those things that made purely, logical sense, Purely rational. Purely rational, yeah. I feel that we would not have prevailed. Mm-hmm. It is only by virtue of our capacity to to allow our minds to freely roam the landscape of imaginative possibility that we are able to innovate in the ways that we have collectively. And so imagination, emotion, the inward journey to understand who we are, that's not some esoteric quality of human experience. That is how we came to be the species that we are yeah. and it's only through imagination and creativity and the ability to let the mind wander through the landscape of possibilities that we are able to do the things that we do
1: yeah i've also heard you say, heard you describe religion as a creative move within the I do it's an incredibly universe.
0: creative move you know if you if you recognize that the understanding that we have of our own finite nature. And you recognize that to palliate that deep distress that comes from understanding that everything we care about, everything we work for, everybody we love, everybody we're connected to, that it all dies, that it all goes away. How do you address that as a species? Well, it's a spectacularly creative move to introduce a structure whereby it doesn't all go away, Mm. whereby there is a realm that will allow us to all come back together for some kind of eternal reunion that allows life as we know it Mm. to not end upon death of the physical form. That's a very deeply creative solution that allows the mind to get on with the business of living, Mm. get on with the business of overcoming the challenges of the here and now without being fully overwhelmed by the recognition of its own mortality. I mean, there's a group of researchers who have followed in the footsteps of Ernest Becker, who we mentioned before, that developed an arena of social psychology called terror management theory, which is this idea that what we do is so deeply affected by the recognition of our own mortality. And I remember there's this beautiful quote in one of their papers, and they said that, you know, without religion, we would be reduced to quivering piles of biological protoplasm <laughs> on the sure pathway toward extinction okay. because we would be so overwhelmed by the recognition of what lay in store. Mm. And for, from their perspective, religion was this wonderful advance that allowed the species to carry on even in the face of that knowledge.
1: Mm. I I want to ask you about something kind of granular, but I'm just intrigued by it. It's in um, Until the End of Time. Uh, You said, um, of course, you have long loved mathematics, right? This is maybe perhaps your first love. You said, perhaps we will one day establish that mathematics is fundamentally stitched into the tapestry of reality when you work with the equations day in and day out it surely feels that way i so so what i what i what i was what what am i be curious about is that are have we not established that mathematics is fundamentally stitched into the tapestry of reality like where are we uh, short of that and what difference would that make what i guess i'm just asking what are you sure. saying there i'm just really curious about what you're saying there Well,
0: different people have different perspectives Mm -hmm. on this. There are colleagues of mine who are absolutely certain that mathematics is the rock-bottom quality of the world that allows it to be what it is and governs how it progresses from moment to moment and governs how it came to be. And it's all a manifestation of the mathematical equations. There's another group... Of scientists, And I count myself a firm member of that group, which looks at mathematics as a description of reality. It's not reality itself. It's not mm. stitched into the fibers of how the world is put together. I Rather, see. it's a human language of human invention that is really good, really good at describing how the world behaves. It allows us to make predictions about how particles behave that agrees with experiment to nine or 10 decimal places after the decimal point. That that is surely impressive. But I allow for the very real possibility that, you know, one day we encounter other intelligent life in the universe, and they ask us how we've been going about trying to understand reality. And we show them our mathematical equations and they'll kind of smile uh, and say, okay. Oh yeah, we tried that. You know? <laughs> <All right. laughs> but it's not the final answer. Yeah. There's something deeper. I don't know what that deeper thing would be, but I'm not convinced that mathematics is it,
1: yeah, ok. um, you know, I just want to read the chapter headings in this book because it's just such an I mean, just in itself, this is it kind of conveys this majestic story, these majestic interwoven stories you're talking about. The lure of eternity, beginnings, endings, and beyond. The language of time, past, future, and change. Origins and entropy from creation to structure. Information and vitality from structure to life. Particles and consciousness from life to mind. Language and story from mind to imagination. Brains and belief from imagination to the sacred. Instinct and creativity from the sacred to the sublime. Duration and impermanence, from the sublime to the final thought. The twilight of time, quanta, probability, and eternity. And then finally, the nobility of being, mind, matter, and meaning. That phrase, the nobility of being, um, you know, I sometimes ask people, um, sometimes wonder about, you know, and I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this with you, but how... In some sense, we've been speaking about this the whole time. But how your sense of what it means to be human um, has evolved and keeps evolving through this work you do, through this view that you have, and and I and I guess that phrase, the nobility of being, uh, for me, is a, is is perhaps um, a way you might describe that. And I'm just curious, that, you know, did that is that phrase something that that has that has developed, that you came to a point in your life um, where it has a certain meaning? What, What does that hold for you?
0: Well, for me, the idea that we human beings who are fully governed by the laws of physics and are just collections of particles, the fact that we gain conscious awareness... And the fact that within that conscious awareness, we can look out into the universe and recognize that the universe is largely indifferent to our presence. We can look out into the universe and recognize that our presence is extraordinarily limited, both in space and in time. We can recognize our own mortality, and yet, even with those recognitions, we have the temerity to try to understand reality. We have the capacity to create things of astounding beauty. We have the ability to illuminate the deep mysteries. We have the ability to experience great wonder and transcendent moments. And the fact that we can do that, and the fact that we're willing to do that in the face of our realizations about reality to me, that's deeply noble.
1: Mm.
0: That's, that's the nobility. We don't cower in the face of our recognition. We stand up, we face it, we push on. And in the process, we're able to transcend the qualities of the world that would seemingly be insurmountable.
1: Mm. The the final lines of the book are, um, let me just read it from the book to make sure I, um, okay. You have a long notes section. Um, Science is a powerful, exquisite tool for grasping an eternal reality. But within that rubric, within that understanding, everything else is the human species contemplating itself, grasping what it needs to carry on and telling a story that reverberates into the darkness, a story carved of sound and etched into silence, a story that, at its best, stirs the soul. And I guess I'd, I'd also love to know, what does that word soul for you hold?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you know my, uh, my brother comes at the world from a rather distinct perspective. Yes, uh, a
1: Vedic perspective.
0: A Vedic perspective, mm-hmm. you know, joined the Hare Krishnas back in the 60s. And um, uh, when he saw, the, when he read the last word of the book, he said, did you put that in for me? <laughs> 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 and, um, uh, you know, at some level, I guess, yes. But more more generally, to me, the the use of the word soul there is really by design. It's my way of making clear that however much of a physicalist I am, however much I am a hard-nosed physicist when it comes to what things are real in terms of the fundamental laws and the fundamental constituents and the physical processes that are possible, however hard-nosed I'm about that, I recognize that we humans are much more than that we are much bigger than that. We have these qualities and these capacities that transcend the physical description. They emerge from the physical description. We don't need anything else but the physics, but because of how we are configured and how organized we've become through evolution by natural selection, our minds can reach to the farthest edges of the cosmos and in some sense beyond. And it is the beyond quality that I think the word "soul" there is meant to capture.
1: Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you for My um, yeah. Thank you for thank you World Science Festival and and this book and for this conversation.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Um, Zach, do we need anything else? Are we good, or do you need to? Okay, Zach will make sure that we nail this technologically, and we'll let you know uh, when this is going to air.
0: Great. Thank okay. you. Yeah, bye-bye. Krista, thank you so much. I yeah. appreciate it.
1: Take care.